Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 23. We're going to begin at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1, and read through verse 12. Uh, you will see uh, that though this, you, know, you might be wondering, what in the world are you doing? What happened to angels and shepherds and babies in a manger? What are, why are, this is Christmas. What are we talking about? You'll see in verse 12 a phrase that gets repeated often in the Old Testament. We've taken this Advent season and then beyond to really talk about uh, the reality of humility and the way that the first are last in the kingdom of heaven and the last are first. Those who exalt themselves are ultimately humbled and those who humble themselves are exalted. There's this great inversion because of the Most High God uh, making himself man and coming, stepping into the world in the way that has turned the world upside down or Maybe you would say it's turn the world right side up, okay? And so a text here from Matthew 23, beginning in verse 1. Let's read together. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all, for their, do, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and the greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord, would you say with me? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Okay. Christmas is an act of cosmic humility. That's what we've been saying. Jesus, who was God, made himself nothing, that's an active verb, by the way, in the Greek. It, he made himself nothing. It's not something that happened to him. It's something that he chose. It's something that he intended. He made himself nothing coming into the world. Very God of very God, born of a woman. He lived his whole life as a servant of all, obedient to God in all things, all the way to the cross where he died for the sins of the world. Because the substance of the world is human pride. And so his coming broke the world in a good way. What we call the world, use whatever word you want to, the world, culture, the cosmos, society. What the Bible says is that this whole reality that we know is fading, it's passing away, and it is being replaced by the new thing that Jesus' coming has created. And if you want to be a part of that new thing and not simply a part of the old thing that is dying off, then because it was created by humility, the only way to be a part of it is for you to be humble yourself. There are two ways to live, and this is what you're going to see in this text, contrasted with one another. You can, on the one hand, strive to be, to be, and, to be and to finish first, to win. You can strive for your own self-exaltation by being better than other people or accomplishing more. But that is a way of life that is characteristic of the old thing that is on its way out and soon will be no more, which is why it says over and over again that those who aspire to be first at the end of the day will ultimately be last. Those who exalt themselves will, when all things are said and done, actually be humbled. They will end up with nothing in the end because that thing that they live for will no longer exist. The other way, though, the other way to live is to put others first, 
to humble yourself and become a servant to all as an act of obedience to God. And the people who do that, they already, the Bible says, belong to the new reality that is on the way that will replace the old and that will go on forever and ever. They, they, even though their experience of this world might be that they have this sense of being last or least, they will end up first. They who humble themselves will be exalted in the end. And so you see this, you see this verse, verse 12. This is the, the gospel axiom that we are looking at over and over again throughout the weeks of Advent and beyond. It says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's a promise. And so we're turning again and again, week after week, to that same promise to hopefully work into ourselves the very humility that Jesus has shown in his coming. But this morning we turn to an interesting subject, and that is this. How does, how does religion... How does religion, being a religious person, being a good moral person, factor into all this? Because these verses are part of an extended diatribe by Jesus against the religious leaders of his day and the way they had corrupted the worship and the obedience of God's people. Now, when I use the word religion, here's, I mean it as shorthand for your approach to God, your life with God, church and Bible study and prayer and charitable giving and all of the things you do because uh, you, you have a relationship with God and you're living your life with God, okay? How does, how, how does humility or the need for humility factor into what is typical of most of us in the room this morning in our attempts and our striving to be good, moral, you know, people who love God and, and love others, okay? And what you see in the text is there's something very sinister at work here because there is a kind of religion. There's a kind of religion that if you're not careful, you can fall into religion, remember, just being shorthand for life with God. There's a kind of religion that's all about you. That's just all about you. Uh, you're being good. You're trying to be good. You're, you're becoming a good person, but you're being good in a really bad way. And then there's a kind of religion that's all about others. It's really others-focused. It's for God and for others. And so it's being good in a good way. And we want to we see the contrast in the way Jesus displays this here in the text, and then ask for ourselves, well then, if that is kind of the fork in the road we find ourselves at, then how do we, as a people, live with the mind of Christ? How do we choose the better way? How do we choose to be good, but in a good way and not in a bad way? Or you've heard maybe, this dates you, if you're willing to admit, you've heard of the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. This morning we want to talk about the bad, the good, and the beautiful. And really, last minute change to the sermon title really if i if i could go back in time i would call uh the the title of the sermon this morning it's a wonderful life which is apropos to the season and so let's look together as we walk through the text okay i want you to see these three things the way you can be good but in a bad way the way you can be good in a good way and then how we can have the mind of christ so first the bad okay there is a kind of religion we're told by Jesus here, that's really all about you. It's actually a strategy of self-exaltation, of self-promotion even. Look here, he says about the people that he's getting on to here, beginning in verse 5, he says, they, these religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Now these people, these religious leaders, they were very good, but... They were good in a very bad way because their goodness 
corrupted them and made them proud. Everything they did, even their goodness, was calculated to get a response. They did it, we're told, to be seen. They loved the honored seats. They, they cherished their titles. They wanted people to look and think, wow, they are, they are really, really great people. And what's fascinating is later in the text, in verse 13, Jesus calls them hypocrites. They are actors, he says. They were not what they seemed. They looked religious. They, you know, they, they, they exhibited the traits of good moral people, but their religion, their goodness was fake because it was not really about worshiping God. It was not about serving other people. It was... When you got to the bottom of it, just all about them. And they were using their religion to exalt themselves, not to serve others. The scribes and the Pharisees were doing the right things, but with the wrong motivations. They were following the rules, probably better than you and I do, but for the wrong reasons. And that's an important part of the equation. There is a kind of religion where the further you go on, you get better and better. You make progress you get better and better, but if you're not careful, as you get better and better, you also get more and more proud and boastful, and as a result, contemptuous towards other people who aren't as good as you are. And that is what I mean when I say there's a way to be good, but in a bad way. Now, C.S. Lewis anticipated this reality and, and the objection that people would have to seeing this in his radio lectures that later became Mere Christianity, which, was, which is his most popular, at least nonfiction book. Now, this is a long, this is a long quote. You'll have to bear with me. But let's be honest, you shouldn't be surprised by me quoting C.S. Lewis at this point, okay? So it's worth, it's worth contemplating. You can find it. There's a chapter on, on pride in his book, in, in Mere Christianity, which is just, just, I can't even put into words. But here's what he says. He says, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. And unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. He says, as long as you're proud, you cannot know God. And you might say, whew, that's a strong statement. But, but then he goes on in the very next sentence to say it in such a way that you're like, oh yeah. Because he says, as long as you're proud, you cannot know God. And here's what he says, because a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So whenever we find, he says, that our religious life is making us feel as though we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we're being acted on, but just not by God, probably being acted on by the devil instead. The real test of being in the presence of God, he says, is that either you forget yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty object, but then he says it's far better to just forget about yourself altogether. Now remember, remember how we've been describing humility throughout these weeks. Humility is the disappearance of the self. Humility is the displacement of the self in the enthronement of God. That's Andrew Murray's definition. And so he says, C.S. Lewis, to continue with him, he says, It is a terrible thing that the worst of all the vices can smuggle itself into the very center of our religious life. The devil is perfectly content to see you become chaste, He's perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he is setting up in you the dictatorship of pride. Just as he would be quite content to see a rash cured if he was allowed in return to give you cancer. 
He says, for pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Pride is cancer. All the other sins are like a skin rash, which is why Andrew Murray said this. He said, humility is the bloom and the beauty of holiness. He means that humility, that excuse me, that holiness without humility is not true holiness. If you're a good person, but you go around and you're, you're proud of how good you are and you're, you're eager to, to make sure other people know how good you are and how bad they are consequently, and then that's bad. It, it's impossible to be good in a self-conscious way. If you have to announce your goodness everywhere you go, then it's the bad kind of goodness. It's the kind that makes you kind of hold your nose when you see it. That's uncomfortable. I mean, the best example I know is if you've ever seen the, pl- the show Wicked, it's Galinda the Good and Wicked. That's what makes me so nice, she goes around saying all the time, right? And you see this character, and if you've not seen it's coming to the Strads, by the way. You should go see it. I mean, it's, it's just this remarkable um, character that is just so uncomfortable. It's just, cr- it's just cringeworthy the whole time. And, of course, that show is based upon Gregory Maguire's book, called Wicked, and if, you, if you're not familiar with it, the book offers, uh, it's, it's really creative, it offers an alternative storyline uh, from the one we get in The Wizard of Oz, uh, that classic uh, movie and book, and it, it asks the question, what if the Wicked Witch of the West wasn't actually wicked? What if she was just misunderstood? And then it kind of plays out from there, and it's really creative, but it's, it's really cynical, uh, and it's morally ambivalent, which you shouldn't be, you know, surprised to hear that. Like, for example, in the book, one of the one of the um, one of the characters in the book says this: "People who claim that they're evil are usually no worse than the rest of us. It's the people who claim they're good or anyway better than the rest of us that you have to be wary of." And it kind of plays off of that, you know. And it's fascinating. I uh, and I think there's something to that. I, I read uh, the Little House on the Prairie books to my girls when they were little, and man, I was thinking we had my, our son graduated from college. Uh, this weekend, and so it's just hard to believe that we're at that stage. I, I remember the days when they were little, and I read to them before they went to sleep, and gosh, I would, I would pay a million dollars to go back there, uh, because it's, and it was as innocent and sweet as it sounds. It really was, and so we read the little house on the storybooks, and I was always, always fascinated by the relationship between Mary and Laura, the two main characters in those books in the family. Mary, of course, was the good girl. She always did everything perfectly, exactly the way she was supposed to, and Laura... Laura was what? She was curious. She was mischievous. She seemed to always be getting into trouble and causing causing trouble everywhere she went. There's one particular scene. I can't remember which book it's in, uh, where the two of them are talking. And Laura, you know, Laura's just kind of rowdy and rambunctious. She says to her sister, she says, you used to try all the time to be so good. And you always were good. It made me so mad I wanted to slap you, she says. And it's, it's great. Mary And Mary, who's older, she's the older of the two, she, she, uh, they have this back and forth for a minute, and she says, well, I know why you wanted to slap me. It was because, if you could look into my heart, she said, I wasn't really good. I know why you wanted to slap me. It was because I was showing off. I really wasn't wanting to be good. I was wanting to show myself off what a good little girl I was. I was being vain and proud, and I deserved to be slapped. That's a lot of insight from, you know, a young girl, but it's, I think there's something to that, that you, you can be good, but in a bad way like that, to show off, 
to exalt yourself or to distinguish yourself from a sibling, to say, I'm the good girl and you're not. The scribes and the Pharisees, that's what you see. They were good, but they were proud of how good they were because they believed, at the end of the day, this is what it all boils down to, they believed that they were saved by their goodness. People, people who have this characteristic, who might be good people and moral people and religious people, but somehow it's corrupted and, and turned them into proud people, if you dig into their lives a little bit, or if that's you and you start to dig into your own life, what you'll see is that at the bottom somewhere, what they came to believe, they believed that they were saved by their goodness. They, that they believed that they were saved by the works that they were doing, that they were saved by these works and not by grace in Christ Jesus. The irony, though, is that what the Bible says, and it's something we should all wrestle with, is that if you believe that you're saved through what you do, then you will never be able to do what it takes to be saved. That belief corrupt, corrupts your ability to actually do the good works that you believe you need to do. It says here of these people, verse 3, that they did not practice what they preached because they were motivated wrongly in their heart by pride and by the desire to exalt themselves above other, other people, not love for God, not love for others. Everything they did was for their own glory, even the good things they did. And at the end of the day, what I want you to see is it was ultimately a failure of love. It was a failure of love. That's our theme, love. So the person I'm describing has a certain effect on other people, and I, it's not positive. I mean, when you have someone like this, who is good but also proud and boastful, it has an effect upon the people around them that is, that is significantly negative. They put heavy burdens on other people. Jesus says it like this, verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. And he was talking about their rules, of course, but he was also talking about their vibe. I mean, this is the vibe that a parent who is exacting and rigorous in the way that they demand of their children or in friendships that have that characteristic, there's a vibe that comes off because we're all proud. Every single one of us in the room, we're all proud. And so when you, when you as a proud person see someone doing better than you are and they're broadcasting how, how, well, how well they're actually doing, they're proud of it and they're boasting, they're taking every opportunity to tell you how much better they're doing than you are, then your flesh, the part of all of us that wants to do life without God, that wants to have the credit for itself, your flesh reacts to that pride, your pride reacts to that pride and that other person by creating envy and shame and if you're not careful, it becomes a heavy load of condemnation and self-contempt that we all carry around. And we can do this to one another. We can do it as parents to our kids. We can do it in our friendships with one another when we are motivated by pride and a desire to exalt ourselves, even in the midst of a, a sincere, well-thought-out, desperate attempt to be and to do good. There's a bad way. There's a bad way of, of being and doing good. But secondly, there's not just the bad, but Jesus contrasts this with what he desires for his people. He says, we see the good. He says there's a kind of religion that's all about you, and then there's a kind of religion that's all about others. And Jesus clearly steers us away from the example, the negative example set by the religious leaders. He says this, he begins in verse 8 to describe the difference. He says, but you, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. And neither be called instructor, for you have one instructor of the Christ. And then he sums it all up. He says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Now this is call to be good in a good way, because Christianity at the end of the day is not about being good, it's about being humble. The measure of Christianity is not 
a person's goodness, but their humility before God and others. And so there's a number of ways we apply this and that he leads us to. For the one thing he says, we should be very, very careful of creating hierarchies. That's a, that's a sign of, um, of spiritual unhealth in a group, you know, whether it be a family, a church, or whatever the case might be. Jesus says there's one teacher, one father, he's in heaven. There's one instructor, he says, you are all brothers, and so relate to one another as equals, because all of the rest, when you start creating ranking systems and hierarchies among, among groups and amongst yourselves, all of that's just pride. Pride is competitive. Pride creates distinctions. Pride separates people out into the winners and the losers. It divides up the group into the leaders and the followers, the teachers and the students, those who are you know, up here and those who are down here, the haves and the have-nots, and everybody knows what place they're they're in and it creates this environment. But the church, the, you know, the gathering of God's people is meant to be this unique social institution where the leaders are not exalted and given some kind of unquestioned authority. I mean, there have been way too many examples recently of how bad an idea that is. The church is this unique thing that's so beautifully constructed in the mind and the imagination of God where the shepherds, like me, are sheep. Hello, you with me? You're a sheep. Guess who else is a sheep? I'm a sheep. It's this unique challenge of how you do leadership in this context. But, but let, let me be very clear. There is no man of God. God help us. There is no man of God in this church. There is God and there's everybody else. You with me? And I'm just a part of that everybody else. And so is Jonathan and the rest of us who are trying to lead this place. We have to be careful of creating these hierarchies. It's a sign of spiritual unhealth. And then secondly, though, you see that leadership in that case is, a, is very clearly, it's a downward trajectory. He says, verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. So spiritual maturity is measured, most of all, by humility. I remember when I was young, just starting out in ministry, Ashley and I, before kids, we were in our early 20s. I served for nine months at a big church in Orlando, well, I was going to seminary, and it was, I mean, you might call it a mega church, I don't know. But one day, I was, um, we were doing college ministry, and I was setting up a room, this, this sprawling campus of a church with, you know, thousands and thousands of, of um, square feet. And I was setting up a room for a meeting that we were going to have later that night. And as I was setting up tables and chairs by myself kind of in the middle of the day, somebody on the custodial staff found me uh, doing that, and they were outraged and immediately, you know, ran up and said, oh, please, stop, stop, stop doing that. Pastors don't do that. And, and, I, and it's the truth. I got in trouble for it. I actually got called into the senior pastor's office about it. And it really shaped me in profound ways. I thought, yeah, I, I don't think this is right. Because Jesus said, greatness is serving others. So the higher up the organizational chart in that case you are, the more you serve, not less. True goodness always goes to work for other people. That's what it means to be humble and to humble yourself. You put others first. You're doing all that you're doing for others and not merely for yourself. You're, you're motivated by love and not just pride because there's a connection, see? There's a connection between, between pride and humility. I mean, between, between humility and love and love and humility. Pride, pride is the root of jealousy and envy and divisions and superiority complexes and inferiority complexes and all the things that just make relationships so wonky. Humility is the disappearance of the self, the displacement of the self. 
And I've got to get myself out of the way before I can start properly thinking about you. See how that works? The clear teaching of the text is humble yourself. That's the application here. Humble yourself. Don't exalt yourself. But here's the problem. You can't, you can't make yourself humble. But you can humble yourself. And I think in the context, there's a very clear application. And it means if, the, if the, what was wrong with these people is their, their way of practicing their religion and doing all of their things in the public eye for everybody to see and congratulate them and to make themselves feel better, then for us to humble ourselves means that we need to shift and create a way of practicing our religion in secret instead. These scribes and Pharisees, they prayed in the marketplaces, they sounded the trumpets, and then... And then once everybody had, you know, their, the atten- they would literally go out into the most crowded parts of the city and they would, and everybody would turn and, and look where that sound was coming from. And then they would give their alms to the poor. I mean, we know this from historical accounts. They would show up at feasts and they would sit in the honored places. Everything was calculated to be seen, to, be, to exalt themselves, and they used their religion to do it. But Jesus said, and this is Matthew chapter 6, He said, be careful, (laughs) be careful of acting that way. Be careful of being good to be seen by others. Being good is a strategy of self-exaltation. That's deadly. He said, instead, instead, if you are going to give, do it anonymously. Do it so that nobody knows. When you pray, he said, go into the inner room of your house where there are no windows and nobody can see and do it there because God sees. He says, if you fast, don't tell anybody you're doing it. Now, if you fast, I'm impressed, okay? Just, but if you fast and you don't talk about it, holy moly, you're one of the righteous ones, if that's the case. He says, if you're making a sacrifice, if you, out of obedience to him, have flexed into something that's really hard, don't go around talking about how hard it is. And making people feel so sorry for you because you're doing this hard thing. God will see. Do it for him. He's the one that rewards, and that's enough. The question is, as we contemplate these things, who are you doing it for? Are you doing it just to be seen? Are you doing it for the reward and the praise of others, or to be known as a good person or a leader? Well, if that's the case, yuck, right? That's just gross. So if that's the case, then it's not for God. It's not for the sake of serving others. It's just about you. But if you're really doing it for God, then the way you know that is then it won't matter if only God sees. And Jesus says he'll reward you. Not with earthly treasure, probably not with the applause from the crowd, or a plaque on the wall, or a huge donor base for your ministry, but with treasure in heaven, which means all the good you do It might go unseen for now, but one day, everything hidden will be revealed, and whatever good you did here that went unnoticed there, it will be celebrated forever and ever. Here's what heaven's going to be. Heaven is going to be one gold buzzer moment after another for every single one of us, forever and ever and ever. Isn't that going to be awesome? So humble yourself. Do it it in secret, because that act, that act of that secret-keeping life with God and disappearing into the service of other people, it's the training ground for humility. When yourself starts to disappear, when you learn how to displace your ego 
in the care and love of other people, then, as Hannah Anderson says, instead of competing, we can care for each other. Instead of comparing, we can have compassion on each other. Instead of controlling each other, we can begin to cultivate each other. And that's the good. You see the bad and the good? Let's look third and lastly as we come to the close at the beautiful. Because we've seen the bad and the good. So how do we have the mind of Christ? And that phrase is right out of Philippians 2. It's an important passage. It's a Christmas passage. It describes the incarnation that Jesus, who was God, making himself nothing and being born in human likeness, becoming a servant, obedient all the way to the cross where he died for the sins of the world. And to have the mind of Christ is to think of your life and to think about your life the way that Jesus thought about his. To have the same mindset. Do nothing from selfish ambition, Paul says, or vain conceit. Not seeking to exalt yourself or make a name for yourself, but rather in humility to put other people first, doing good to others, and not just thinking about what's good for you. So how do you do that? How do you strive to be good, but in the good way and not the bad way? Well, let me come back to something I've said already, but that we need to come back to yet again, and it's the most basic teaching of Christianity. Christianity, if you're here and you're not a Christian, and you, you know, well, what is Christianity? Let me tell you, Christianity is gospel. It is good news. It's not good advice, it is good news. And that's why Christmas is so important, by the way, because Christmas is not a myth, it is not a legend. Christmas is history. That's what Christians believe. Christians believe that Christianity doesn't just tell you what you should do. It's not one of Aesop's fables. It tells you what God has done in human history in a particular place at a particular time among a particular group of people. Christianity is good news. It is good news of what God has come into the world in Jesus Christ to do. And so salvation, after all, it seems, is based on work, just not your works. The works that God has done for you in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. For you, for you it's all grace. For him, it was works for him so that it could be grace for you. It's a gift of sheer grace, undeserving by any of us. And yet, here's the thing, and yet if it is a gift, if we are all here on the basis of gift, on the basis of grace and not our own merit, then there is absolutely no reason to ever be proud. In fact, because Christianity is grace, then we see how it really works. If it is grace, if it's what God does for us, not what we do for him, if it's grace, then verse 12 is true. Whoever exalts himself will at the end be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will in the end be exalted. This is just cause and effect. Those are all future verbs. They're future tense verbs there. We're all being pulled forward by some version of the future. We're being pulled. I, I did the wrong. We're not being pushed. We're being pulled. Like our today is shaped by our expectation and our vision of tomorrow. So it's begging you to ask the question, if your intention is to exalt yourself. If the way you think about your future, the way you're planning and making preparations for your future, if, if your plan, if your intention, if your desire is to just exalt yourself, that's a future active verb. If what you're going to do with your tomorrow is to figure out a way to exalt yourself, if the tomorrow you imagine is all about you and what's good for you and what you'll enjoy and what will make for the best life for you and how to make a name for yourself, if that's your motivation... If that's how you're planning and making decisions, then here's what the text says. God makes a promise to you, then you will be humbled. That's future passive. It's what will happen to you. Because, as the Bible said, God, because he is good and he loves us, God opposes the proud. But if your intention 
the way you think about your life, your tomorrow and the day after and the day after, is to humble yourself. Again, future active verb. If the tomorrow you imagine is full of good things for other people in whatever small way you might be involved in what God desires to do, then it says, then you will be, future passive verb, then you will be exalted. Because though God does oppose the proud, it also says he gives grace to the humble. If you try to keep your life, what happens? You lose it. If you lose your life, you find it. This is the way it works. You reap what you sow. It's just it's just in reverse. If you sow pride, the promise of this text is you will reap humiliation. If you sow humility, you will reap praise and glory and reward. And that's true not only in the way life shakes out, but also it's true, and most importantly, it's true in the ultimate sense too, of course. At the end of your life, Christians believe that every one of us were destined to die and then once upon death to stand before God to give an account for our life. And if at the end of your life, when you stand before God in judgment, Here's the promise. Everything that you did in this life that was motivated by pride, by selfishness, selfish ambition, all of those things that were motivated there, they're going to burn away. It'll be lost and forgotten because it's a part of the old world that has passed away. And if you try to stand before God in your own strength, on your own record, can I be your friend and tell you you're in big, big trouble? But if you come to him with nothing, if you throw yourself upon his mercy, if you look to what Jesus has done for you, his life, his death, his resurrection, at his place at God's right hand, if that is your only hope, then even though you come with nothing, even though you come only with the humility of your nothingness before the Lord, then you have nothing to fear. Jesus told another story about a Pharisee and a tax collector, Luke 18. You might remember the story. The Pharisee there was, he's a good guy, but he was proud. And they both came to God, and the Pharisee came to God with a spiritual resume. He came looking down on the tax collector. Remember, he says, I do this and do that. And it was an impressive resume that he laid out. He, I promise you he did more than you. He fasted not only once a week. He fasted twice a week. Raise your hand if you did that. No, don't do that. Don't, that would be, right? He gave all. He went into the garden and counted the leaves on his mint bush and tithed every tenth leaf to the Lord. I promise you he did more than you. And it was impressive. And he begins to pray to the Lord, and then the prayer is the worst prayer in the history of praying. It's an advertisement for how great he was. He was there in the presence of God, exalting himself. The tax collector, he, he had no such illusions. He knew that he was a sinner. It says he dare not even look up to God, but he, all he could do was beat his chest, and all he, could, all he could get out of his lips was the simple prayer, have mercy upon me, have mercy upon me. He humbled himself before the Lord, and Jesus said that it was the tax collector and not the Pharisee. It was the sinner and not the saint that went home justified, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The coming of Jesus Christ into the world at Christmas has reshaped the fabric of reality. Jesus was exalted, and he humbled himself. He made himself nothing, not clinging to the glory of his godness. And therefore, it says, God highly exalted him. He hyper-exalted him. And because of that, this is now the way the universe works. To borrow from, from Martin Luther King Jr., the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards humility. That's what that verse means. And so, just quite frankly... Seek the spotlight. You will ultimately be forgotten. The name Kardashian is going to go into a file drawer and be forgotten in 100 years and forever and ever and ever. 
If your goal is to be Instagram famous, you're going to be forgotten. But whatever you do in secret when nobody sees and you do it just for God and just for the sake of others, that will be rewarded and celebrated forever and ever and ever. And that's a beautiful life. If you hoard your money, you'll eventually have more than you can possibly imagine, probably. But you'll have no pleasure in it. But if instead you give it away and you use it to serve others, what the Bible says is you'll have more treasure in the end, and that's a beautiful life. If you live for yourself, if you might get all your heart desires, but I promise you you're going to miss out on more in the long run. But if you live for God, if you live for others, if you live a life of simple simplicity and love and service of others, you will find more purpose and joy and fulfillment than you dared to dream possible and that is the best part of life and Christmas is the reason life works this way and it's what it's the lesson George Bailey learned and it's a wonderful life isn't it it's Ashley's favorite um favorite Christmas movie she always wraps presents and watches it although I don't think in all of the years she's ever gotten the family to sit around and watch it with her so maybe we need to do it this year but here's the lesson you remember George Bailey it's really bad for him it's worse he's not sick he's what oh my gosh He's discouraged. He's discouraged because he thinks, does my life even count? I've not really accomplished anything. I've just gone to this dead-end job and, and not really done anything. And so he's contemplating ending his life, and he has to learn the lesson. And the lesson is that a life of simple humility and kindness and service of other people, he learns just how much he's changed the world. It's a wonderful life. And Christmas is the reason it works that way, because what is the message of Christmas? Here's Lucy Shaw in a poem. She's one of my favorite poets, especially with poems about the incarnation. She says, down he came from up, and in from out, and here from there, a long leap, an incandescent fall from magnificent to naked, frail, small. Through space, between stars, into our chill night air, shrunk in infant grace to our damped, cramped earthy place and that act of cosmic humility is reshaping the whole world amen so pray with me as you would so father i do pray that we may stand amazed at the great love that you have shown to us in jesus of the wonder the wondrous mystery of god made small of god taking on human flesh and blood and becoming humble, the humble heart of the Most High coming into the world to rescue and save his people from sin and death. It is overwhelming, so much so that our hearts tend to be prone to unbelief and to hardness against these truths. And so would you crack us open by your word this morning and shape us into something different, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So go then into whatever he would have for you this week, knowing that if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that the Father's face is turned towards you in love, that he has come all the way down from heaven to earth, that he might make this promise to you in this word of benediction at the end of the service. And so receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.